Welcome back to the TechCrunch Live podcast, where we help founders build better venture-backed businesses. I'm Matt Burns, and this is the podcast version of our weekly live show, TechCrunch Live. And we've got a great show for you today. I sat down with Samir Sharif, CEO and co-founder of Cambly, and Sarah Tabel, a longtime investor at Benchmark, to talk about how Cambly's mindset had to change following its failure to raise a Series A, and the challenges of building a marketplace, reaching customers, and why investors love profitable companies. This is the first event for 2023 and is so timely with the fundraising environment. Please stay through to the end too for pitch practice. We have three companies pitching their company to Samir and Sarah and they get great feedback. Enjoy. We have Samir, CEO and co-founder of Cambly. Samir was building Cambly and needed additional capital, but every VC turned down his, his Series A. So what did he do? Well, he changed a few things, tweaked a few levers, and decided to go after profits to keep the doors open. And it worked. Uh, he's since raised a Series A and a Series B and is now on the show. And this conversation is for everyone. If you read TechCrunch, it looks like every viable company raises a ton of money from venture capital, but that's just not the case. The vast majority of small companies need to be profitable from day one, and they cannot rely on VCs to subsidize products. Cambly's story isn't just a fundraising story. It's a story about how to make money. So Samir, thank you so much for joining us. I'm excited that you're here and let's let's jump right into this. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, I was hoping you could just start by painting a picture for us. It's 2016 and you just closed your seed round. What was the trajectory of Cambly? Where are you guys going and, and what did it look like? Yeah, so we started the company a while a while ago, and kind of had just been focused on steadily growing in a in a sort of lean and efficient way. And we had a small team. Uh, the business was growing at like a pretty healthy rate. And you know, yeah, 2016 or so, we were we were growing well. Uh, starting to think about okay, when are we going to raise our Series A? You know, come 2017, uh, I think we're looking like lots of other startups where we're like, okay, like. We don't have a ton of capital. We have pretty ambitious plans. You know, I think this summer we'll go and raise our Series A. So Cambly, just to kind of for for context, is an English education company, and so uh, really simple app. You open the app, you press the button, and within a few seconds, uh, you get an, a friendly native English speaker over video chat. And so it's a two-sided marketplace. Uh, on one side, you have students. On the other side, you have tutors. The students pay to use a the service; they pay a subscription fee, uh, and the tutors get paid to talk to uh, to students. And you know, we set out to build this company to help people work on the English skills. Um, it's a huge, huge problem in the world. Uh, but I think what's pretty interesting about it, it's a problem that many of us in the English speaking world just overlooked. Um, you know, when you look at it kind of globally, there's about 8 billion people in the world. There's 6 billion of those people who don't speak English. So uh-huh. in the broadest sense, that's the market. It's an enormous problem. Uh, and by the way, of those 6 billion people, uh, 1.5 billion are uh, actively trying to learn English right now. And so this huge, huge problem in the world, but yeah, what I think is really interesting about it is uh, those of us who speak English, we just don't see it every day. We don't feel the problem ourselves. People we don't we know don't have this problem either. And so although it is this, one of the larger problems in the world, it's not something English-speaking world really noticed. And you know, we got we got interested in this problem from our own sort of experience learning other languages. But then when we started looking at the language learning market more broadly, we realized like we wanted to learn, you know, Spanish and, and, and French respectively, but the world really wants to learn English. And so that's kind of where we decided to focus on. And uh, we've sort of never looked back since that. Uh, but yeah, coming back to kind of 2016, 2017, we've been working the company for a couple of years. We'd gone through Y Combinator, uh, raised a seed round, uh, raised a bit more money after that. But, you know, we're kind of gearing up to, to raise a, a Series A. You know, we we kind of let burn get a little high. I think in hindsight, we'd maybe raised a little too little money 
and maybe hired a little more than we should have given sure. the money we raised. And so definitely some lessons I look back and say I should have been watching the watching the burn more closely back then. Uh, but like all other stuff, we said, oh, we'll just go and raise our Series A and, and continue on another journey. And so uh, that was the plan. But, you know, as you teased a bit, uh, you know, we went out to raise things that did not go according to plan at all. Uh, you know, we thought we have a strong team. We have a good business. It's growing. You know, we'll, we'll do things that start Silicon Valley startups do and, and raise money and, and continue on our journey. But um, we got a lot of no's. Like, and, we, and we went all out, probably talked to every Silicon Valley investor you've, you've ever heard of. And they've probably said no to Cambly at, at some point along our journey. And so that was a big challenge. Uh, you know, we weren't actually in that strong of a position in that in that point. Like, you know, we had some amount of money in the bank, but not a ton. We were burning a decent amount. You know, fortunately, my co-founder, his name's Kevin, he and I had had sort of circled up before we went into the fundraise and we said, okay, what do we do if this doesn't work? And we kind of came up with a plan B. And the plan B was was like figure out how to make the company be able to stand on its own two feet. Like let's get the company to cash flow positive. And so you know, because we had planned this out in advance and we'd sort of thought through what would happen if this fundraiser doesn't go um, as we hope it will, we we did not procrastinate. We started executing on plan B, uh, like immediately the exact day so we plan, said we're going to start doing it. So if I can jump yeah, in here, but, plan B was yeah. to go profitable overnight, right? And that's at its core, Cambly is a marketplace. So when did you initially plan to, to be profitable and what was on the roadmap? We hadn't really like figured out exactly when we were going to try to get to profitable or cash flow positive. I think we were we were like we had we weren't like spending irresponsibly. Like we had a pretty small team, but uh, I don't know if I actually I had an answer to that back then. I don't know if we had an exact plan of when we would hit hit that level. Uh, but when we didn't get any money, uh, whatever you know hypothetical future date it was, we pulled it in really close <laughs> uh, because we could see how you know how we were trending and what was going to happen if we didn't get the cash flow positive. We started executing on the plan very, very, very swiftly. It was very educational for me in, in a lot of ways. I think a lot of the decisions we made are decisions we would have made with the company, but they would have taken a really long time. But when you're in that moment and you're you know, you, you, it was the first and only time in our history that we had an existential risk. Like if we didn't figure things out, Cambly would, would not be able to continue to exist. Although that was incredibly stressful and challenging to have this, this existential risk, like, hey, Cambly like may not exist if we don't make the right set of decisions <laughs> uh, in the next few weeks. Like that was super stressful and challenging, but it also brings a ton of clarity to like to what you need to prioritize and what you need to work on. And so, you know, I think it was challenging and, and stressful, but it was also one of the most productive periods in Cambly's history, the next four months. Yeah. So we started executing on it immediately. And the first thing we did is we raised prices. And so the nice thing about our business, and I remember thinking about this at the time, like if we were a free consumer uh, app, uh, it would have been a lot harder to like figure out what to do. But we weren't. We were actually made a lot of money. There was a lot of money flowing through the system. And I remember thinking, like, if only we could keep a little bit more of that money, uh, we'd be in so much better of a position, right? You know, we knew we had these levers, but we just weren't pulling them. And then when, when we found out the fundraise was was not going the way we wanted, we said, okay, let's start pulling them and let's start pulling them right now. The, the biggest lever there was, was pricing. And so we we actually, in the, over the course of one week, we raised all of our prices across the company. And that's a scary thing to do because you always kind of have this fear that like, hey, what if people stop buying sure. you know, when when you know when you raise the prices? And I think we had this intuition that like what we're building is super valuable to people. It is so much better than what exists uh, out there. And and it's something that people are gonna be willing to pay for. And this was our intuition, but but we tested that intuition. Uh uh, again, not not at our choice, but because we were kind of forced to. And uh, what we saw was, I think, amazing. Like we raised our prices all over the course of a week, and our like our gross profits, so what we kept, 
after we paid, uh, you know, after we paid our tutors, it started to climb like instantly. And, you know, what was amazing is those kind of intuitions we had about people willing to buy, like they totally came true. Like people kept buying like at the higher price. And we just literally overnight kind of had a much, much healthier business. Well, I, I, I got to bring Sarah in here because I think she has yeah, some yeah. advice too, right? She's on the other side of this and she's the one that tells people no. I'm, I'm curious. I'm curious how many times a month do you tell people no, Sarah? If it includes my kids, uh, a lot. <laughs> yes, yes. So what what happens after that? I, I, I was I'm hoping to do a role playing here. Let's say I pitched to you, Sarah, and and I didn't do something right, but but we had a good conversation. What do you expect from me as a founder? What what can what can I do to to keep you engaged? At the end of the day, like we know, there's there's a few truths about our job and the job of the founder. First of all, the founder's job is really freaking hard. And there are moments along, you know, the trajectory of a company where you have things like what Samir was talking about for Cambly, where you have like real, you know, you have moments where it's like, feels like it's working, but maybe not working enough. And, you know, you're making progress, but you don't know if you're making enough progress. And then you can also have these really super focusing moments when you make a lot of progress. And then there's like, you kind of, you're going through that journey and then you have these VC meetings and the VC meetings, you know, sometimes you can really control when they happen and you, you know, you have a great event and then you go out and raise, but there's a lot of times when you'll meet with a VC and it maybe isn't exactly stars aligning for, you know, where your company is and where the VC is. And that happens, like, I want you to know that happens a lot. Like I actually, there are several investments in our portfolio. Actually, you know, Cambly, one of my partners met uh, Samir for the A where the stars don't yet align for whatever reason. And then you progress a little bit further and then they do. And so I, I think like, I would always, it's so easy for me to say it, but knowing that a no most of the time is actually just a not yet. As you make more progress in whatever you're 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 pursuing, like send update emails. I, I love I get emails all the time from founders that I've met in the past and really enjoyed the conversation, but for whatever reason it wasn't yet in our strike zone. And then they like, we kind of keep a dialogue up and, and you never know when there's just enough of things that like start to kind of fit into place where it may end up being the right fit. So don't be shy about that. Yeah, that's great. Samir, can we go back to that, that fundraise that did not work out? Is there something you can point to as the main culprit of, of why you did not raise that capital? I think one, you know, as I touched on, like, Cam is kind of a, a weird business in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, we're we were uh, started, co-founded by a couple of Americans in San Francisco, and um, uh, we're building a product that is for everyone but us, which is yeah, pretty unusual. Like we speak English already, uh, and uh, we were trying to build something that that served everyone else. And I think the way you know, I think that's that has lots of implications of how you actually grow the business and how you build it. How do you go to market? Uh, so lots of interesting things that we've had to do very, very differently from other companies. Uh, but I'm sure you've heard the like, you know, when you're starting a company, solve like solve one of your own problems or solve a problem that you see every day. And this is just not something you would come across as an English speaker. Uh, mm -hmm. If you look at yourself and you look at the people, you know, the way that comes up in fundraising is the same is true for investors. Like the first time you talk to an investor and pitch them on this problem, like it's just not something they think about. Uh, not something you're hearing about every day, and so I think it's it's that much harder to hey, to convince them that like 
hey, this is actually a really big global problem when you look globally. Uh, it's just not a problem that we feel here in Silicon Valley. And so I think that made it a challenge. Um, I think that um, there had been a handful of companies that had gone after language learning before us, um, and, and none of them were you know, great outcomes. Obviously, Duolingo has done really well in, in recent years, but there was no Duolingo example when we were getting started. I think, I think you're kind of following a trail of companies that have that have struggled to to, to get get the traction that that VCs get excited about, uh, and so you have to sort of convince them that like, hey, this is really different, and it's that's hard. I think that combo is is really challenging. Um, and then I think there were like the business was in a good spot, uh, like we were growing, and like if we were in another industry, I think there's a chance we could have gotten the round the round done. I do think because of those two things, we just had to hit bigger milestones than than other companies uh, would have to do in order to kind of prove that, that, hey, there was something really here. But the business, you know, it was still early. Like there were ways that could, we could make it, make it better. And uh, I actually learned a lot from a lot of those no's. Like there were things that a lot of, there were themes that came up uh, that, that like, you know, again, I think were really clarifying for me. Like, okay, I really understand how this this super smart investor is thinking about and looking at our business. And there's not, you know, the data doesn't tell the best story here yet. Uh, and it gave me a really clear idea of like, what do I need when I go back? Uh, what do I need to show? Like, what do I need to prove? What do I need to show? Um, and so it, it gave a lot of focus, I think, on on how we could make the case that much more ir irrefutable. Uh, I think when you're when you're not in the hot space that, that all VCs are excited about, and it's not a problem they see or feel every day, and there's not a lot of companies that have been really successful to, to sort of draft off of. Uh, I think the way I thought about it is like, okay, if we're going to prove that there's something here, like we're going to have to do it ourselves. We're going to have to make the business so strong that it's irrefutable that there's something here. Yeah, I'm hoping you, you can name those things. What did you do to make the business so strong? Yeah, so I think the, the, the one piece of feedback I got, I heard a lot was, around like unit economics and like our unit economics were like, they weren't bad. We weren't losing money on every customer, but we had definitely like, we were leaning into growth uh, and in the process had let our margin slip a bit. That impacts kind of what the margin of your business is. It also impacts things like what your LTVs are, what your LTV to CAC ratio is, uh, things like, is this a scalable, you know, a scalable business? Uh, I think the other thing that we were in in that situation is, you know, we, we're a very global business. So we, we have a lot of different markets and we had some markets that were just still really early. So they were on this like really good trajectory, but they were just, they were super small. Uh, and actually at the time, our biggest market, we were having some challenges with. And so I knew kind of what was all going on underneath it, but it was a pretty hard data story to explain where it's like, hey, your biggest market is not growing that fast. These small markets are growing really, really quickly. How do I know as an investor that they're not just going to hit the challenges at the same scale as that other market? And so I think a combo of like some of the, the economics of the business, like just making the unit economics that much stronger, the price changes, getting to cash flow positive, all of that fed really well into it. Uh, and then honestly, also just time, like letting those early markets uh, continue to scale and show that, hey, th this is actually different and, and and actually fixing some of the bigger markets to get them growing quickly as well. And so, you know, I think a little bit about what Sarah was saying, like the, the not yet, um, like we went out to raise, not because it was the perfect time for Cambly from like a, here's the growth story, here's what the business is. Uh, we went out to raise because we needed money. Uh, I learned a lot, I think, through that process that I, I now like to go out to fundraise when it's the right time for the business, like the business is, is in, in at mm. such a good point in such a good trajectory that it makes for a really, really compelling story to tell investors. When you're cash flow positive, you can choose. Uh, when you're not uh, and you depend on external capital, 
you kind of are forced, the timing is forced on you. You know, that was something that happened to us in 2017. And, and once we got to cash flow positive, we've ever since then been able to choose uh, when sure. we decide to go out to fundraise. And then I think maybe even more importantly, who we decide to work with, because, you know, if you'd asked me in, in the thick of that, like keeping the company alive, I probably would have taken money from anyone who was willing to give me money. Uh, but uh, but once we got to cash flow positive, I actually, we had the ability to be a lot more selective. And I think getting to work with with Sarah, getting to work with Jeremy Levine, who led our Series A, like it's it's been super clear how how value add and how incredibly impactful that can be to have people around the table like that. And so I'm I'm actually really grateful that 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 people nobody gave us money back then because because we would have taken it. And I think the company would have been worse off as a result of that. Sarah, can you tell me how it changes the calculus on your end when when a company has cash cash flow positivity? You mean the like one in a thousand times when it <laughs> when it does, maybe one in three thousand times? I mean, it is just a very rare and special part of what Cambly is. Like there are a lot of companies that will have cash flow positive, you know, da- like data on a per customer basis. You know, of course, like SaaS companies, you get paid upfront typically, you know, for a year of providing the service, which is part of what's remarkable about the SaaS business model. But but then those companies often have pretty significant sales and marketing costs, engineering costs, et cetera. And so as a company, you'll never see a subscale SaaS company that's cash flow positive, or at least it's exceedingly rare. And so, you know, the dynamic that Cambly captured was um, was just very unusual and special to see. Samir, I, I, had, I had questions about customer acquisition for you. Did that change at, at all when you guys switched from, from your model and, and before raising the Series A? Yeah, I think that, so we have kind of an interesting customer acquisition story in general. I think, you know, my co-founder, Kevin, and I are both engineers and kind of product people. And so when we were getting started with the company, we we built an app uh, and uh, we uh, just put it out there and then people showed up and sure. tried to deliver a really great experience. We kind of had, we grew in the really early days through like word of mouth uh, and kind of app store discovery. Those two things kind of fueled our early growth. But but you know as as I mentioned we have customers all over the world and so we're really like marketing people not like us in in other lang- in other countries and other languages to other cultures and so actually our first employee at the company um, so we were Kevin and I are two you know former Google software engineers uh, first employee at the company was a Korea country manager uh, and so Korea was this market we were really interested in. They're they're very into English education, and we we met someone who we thought would be a really good fit and kind of complement the skills we had. And within a you know we were, had barely made any traction in Korea, despite our like fascination with the market, we'd barely made any traction there uh, at the point we hired her. And within a couple months, it was our top market. Uh, and so naturally, we were like, wow, something worked really well there. We should try to do that again. Uh, and so I think kind of one of the most interesting aspects of our customer acquisition story is I think less the like specific channels that we've gone after and more the like organizational structure that we've built in order to like build a like a, a truly global company. In the very, very early days, yeah, like we had an app that was localized in 10 languages. We hadn't raised a dollar. We just bootstrapped companies. So I think that's pretty unusual uh, on its own. But but in order to really go to market and get to scale, uh, we've built actually, we've built these teams of, of folks that 
um, you know, grew up in the countries that we're going after, uh, have like the right set of skills to not just kind of very much like founder mentality, like have the right set of skills to like go get their first customer, start to build a brand there as they scale their business, like build out teams to support those businesses. And so um, that's something I think that's like really unique and unusual about our company and and a big part of our kind of our go-to-market strategy that's been that's been super successful. Where, where is Cambly going to end up in about five years from now? Yeah, so our mission as a company is to bring high quality English education to to every English learner in the world. And so, uh, as I mentioned, there's there's 1.5 billion people in the world that are learning English, and and Canvas come a really long way. I'm really like proud of the scale we're at. We're having a huge huge impact in the world already, but we are very very far from that 1.5 billion. Uh, uh, you know, we are just scratching the surface there, and and yeah, we've got kind of way more ahead of us than behind us uh, in order to achieve that that ambitious mission. Uh, what does that actually mean for for you know what Cambly evolves to be? I think there are a lot of things that we need to do to reach more of that 1.5 billion people. I think one really big and kind of obvious one is is price. Uh, and so Cambly is inherently really expensive because you're paying for one-on-one -on -one time with a native English speaker. Our one-on-one -on -one product inherently prices a lot of people out. Um, and if we want to help every English learner in the world, uh, we're going to have to we're, we're going to have to innovate there. And so we actually just recently launched a group product where you can have a small set of students uh, share a tutor, uh, and that dramatically brings down the cost. That's not going to get us to 1.5 billion. I think we're going to continue to have to innovate and figure out how do we reach more and more of those people. But I think from a product direction, that that's a major area where we want to where we need to go in order to in order to fulfill that mission. You know, we're also really excited about just making for a better, healthier marketplace. And so I think another really interesting thing about Cambly is um, our you know our supply, the the tutors in our marketplace. They're like very different from one another, and there's like a ton of diversity in that community. We've we've fostered and deliberately attracted diversity there. Uh, and for a student, uh, you know, the matching you with the right tutor is actually really valuable. Like we could find someone who shares some interests with you, maybe has similar mm -hmm. personality or style to you, someone who has your same job. So when you talk to them, you don't just focus on everyday English, but you can focus on the specific language and terminology you need for your, your job. So if you have an international VC, maybe you match them up with Sarah and then they can talk about cash flow positive and LTV to CACs and, and so forth. Early on, we our value was we were going to deliver you a friendly native English speaker instantly. But the vision was always, we're not just going to give you a friendly native English speaker, but we're going to give you the perfect person for you. Um, and so, you know, your English speaking counterpart, if you will. And so as we've scaled the marketplace, we've gotten much better at that. But uh, but I think we've got a lot of a lot of work to do there. And so really, really excited about how we can improve the the product and the, the user experience uh, from that angle as well. We have a couple more minutes here left. And I want to talk about fundraising a little bit more. And you guys did end up raising a Series A and you raised a Series B. Are you raising anything else right now? We're not raising at the moment. We're just uh, heads down, growing the business. But uh, you know, I think we'll we'll come out to fundraise again. I like to kind of be in fundraising mode or not, and we're not in fundraising mode right now. But uh, we'll come out when the time is right. Sarah, I'm, I'm hoping you can give some advice on fundraising right now in the current environment. What should founders be doing? What shouldn't they be doing? And who should they be talking to? What's the challenge in building marketplaces right now? There's so many of them out there. So what's what's the challenge here? Yeah, I mean, I'd say like the first one, the biggest one that I'm feeling in terms of the companies that I have the privilege of meeting with is that there's not a lot of white space. People are still, you know, we we kind of feel this across all categories of companies, right? And consumer marketplaces, even SaaS and B2B generally is that the incumbents are very strong. And so you're trying to be heat-seeking missile always for 
a place to, to focus where there's enough room that you can grow. Because as a marketplace, when you're trying to get your, your customer to come and the supplier to come, they're always going to be comparing you against any substitute that they have in the market. And so to earn that right for that transaction as the floor of all the potential substitutes, like the, the quality of those other mm-hmm. options keeps on going up and up and up. It just keeps raising the bar as a founder for finding the right segment and what the offering is that you have to bring to the table. The, the second thing that I see a lot when marketplaces, and I, I wrote a whole blog series on this, is you know there's this proclivity or this temptation, I should say, as a marketplace founder that you want to grow GMV really quickly. And oftentimes the fastest, easiest way to grow GMV is to be a mile wide and an inch deep in the thing that you're offering. You know, you're you're chasing, I call it chasing GMV, when really the way to build an enduring marketplace is to become dominant in any particular segment. And to do that, you have to really, really focus. And so I see founders all the time and it, it almost breaks my heart where I'll meet them and they'll, you know, let's take a local marketplace as an example. They'll have started in a segment and then very like in a city, let's say, and then they'll very quickly launch cities two, three, four, and five before they've really knocked the cover off the ball on that first city. And so I'm just a big focus person in the beginning. You know, the last thing I'll say is just like, okay, so I'm saying focus, 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 you know, make your customers really happy. As a Series A investor at Benchmark, what we always then want to make sure is that you're not getting kind of caught in, you know, a cul-de-sac, as they say, like you're, you're, you want to find a segment of the market where, you know, the white hot center for your product market fit, basically. But then you want to be able to make sure that you don't get stuck then in a very small market like, you know, blocksmiths or whatever, that you're going into a market that if you get that flywheel spinning, you can keep growing and growing and growing into something that's really meaningful. That was a very good answer. And Samir, I'll give you the last word on on marketplaces. What have you learned over the last few years building one? Well, I'll build on what Sarah said about focus. Uh, you know, I think we, unlike most of the other like language learning companies out there, we've uh, we've we focus just on English. Like that's the only thing we offer. And uh, honestly, like when I was getting started working on Cambly, I thought, oh, like you know, we'll solve English. Uh, you know, this month and then next month we'll add some other languages. Over time, I've I've learned that like, you know, I've got sort of become more and more uh, focused on us just solving for English. And you know, as as Sarah touched on, like. You might think, oh, if I want to expand my GMV, I can just add other languages. But like when you kind of constrain yourself to like English, which is obviously an enormous problem. So there's no, we're not, we're not in any sort of cul-de-sac. We're in a, whatever the opposite of a cul-de-sac is. It's an enormous space. The thing limiting us is not that like we haven't added other languages. It's that we need to reach more of those English learners. Uh, and when you when you constrain yourself to to something like English, what you can do is then get just a lot more sophisticated within that space. And so. You know, English isn't isn't just English. Like, what if you could, you know, all the matching things we talked about. Like, what if you could perfectly serve a software engineer trying to learn English, or perfectly serve a doctor trying to learn English, right? Like, you can actually start to subdivide and and get really really strong in in these really specific verticals uh, within English. And I think that's something that like 
if you were rap, if you were trying to do the opposite of that and and add everything else and add English and maybe add like math tutoring and you could just imagine how you could kind of get sucked into this GMV game. Uh, you know, you're gonna you're gonna get you're gonna kind of get a mile uh, a mile wide and inch deep. You're gonna spread yourself thin, and nothing is gonna be exceptional. Sure. Uh, and I think what we want to do is uh, English learning is an enormous problem in the world, uh, impacting billions of people. Uh, yeah, we just want to deliver the best experience imaginable for those people. And uh, yeah, I think the focus has, has helped us a lot and and thinking a lot kind of how that pairs with marketplaces is you always have to be thinking about liquidity. How do I build really healthy liquidity in the marketplace? And so, um, yeah, we got liquidity for friendly native English speakers. Do we have liquidity for software engineers or doctors or anyone else? Like maybe not quite yet, but, but we can get there um, with, with the right level of focus. I, yeah, you don't mind if I just build on that a little bit. For me that like, you know, I preach this all the time and then I remember downloading Cambly for the first time when, you know, we first found out about Cambly for the Series B and I was, you know, scheduled it. I was, you know, what is this Cambly thing? And I downloaded the app and opened it. And then I had this like aha magic moment with the product, which was that there, you know, right after downloading, I had five minutes of free tutoring time with an English tutor on demand. I could just click right there and there was an English tutor that I got connected to. And it was this incredible experience. And it was just like this aha moment for me because every other language marketplace I'd ever met, and there's there's several out there that are all incredible businesses, but because they're catering to the English user wanting to learn Spanish for their trip or the French user who's going to Germany for a trip and wants to pick up some German or whatever language pair you can imagine, they have to build a marketplace that kind of serves all those different use cases as a lowest common denominator. And when instead you get to focus, 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 and in you know a market that is obviously incredibly big, but like easy to be un you know unassuming from the outside. I love businesses that are underestimated from the outside. Basically, here you have this focus that results in a product experience that's really differentiated, and that's that's like the magic of focus, and that's what I think is so compelling about what the Cambly team where they started and what they ended up unlocking. I got to know what was your conversation with the tutor like. Did you tell them that you were going to oh invest? Oh my god, in- it was it was a little <laughs> awkward. I, I at first I was I was like halting, and then I was just like, I'm just curious about Cambly. Tell me, <laughs> and so I got to learn a little bit about him and and his experience of the product. Well, that's great, and, and Cambly has a great story, and, and it's going to continue to be told for for years to come. So, thank you so much for both of you for joining us and having this conversation. But we're not done yet. We still have a little more time with you. We have three companies lined up, and they're going to pitch to you guys. And we call this segment "Pitch Practice." And the idea is, when you're a founder, you have to pitch to everyone and anyone that can listen to you. And you two are some of the best. So, we have three companies that are going to pitch to you for two minutes. And then we're looking for four minutes of feedback on the pitch itself, not necessarily the company, unless there's some red flags you want to throw out, but we're just going to get feedback on the pitch. So we have three companies lined up and they just found out. So the first one is Iwello. Are you there, sir? Yes, I am. Hi there. How are you? Very fine. Thank you. Great. Well, you have two minutes to introduce us to your company starting now. Okay. So my name is Adijon Ismail. I'm from Nigeria. I'm the CEO of Iwello. So Iwello is pigeon for I'm fine. So in Nigeria at this moment, we have over 200 million people. And out of those 200 million people, about 88 million live on less than $2 a day. 
we live on less than two dollars a day. And in one of the biggest cities in Africa, which is Lagos, over six million people live on that less than two dollars a day. Now, ultimately, this means that these people cannot really afford consultation because average cost of consultation is five dollars to twenty-five dollars. That means they can't afford to see a doctor. Talk less of having really quality healthcare. So that's why we created Irelo. Irelo is a platform that allows anyone, regardless of your income class, to get access to um, quality consultation with any medical personnel from any field, starting from less than a dollar. Now, our model is actually hinged on two things. Um, we charge 30% for every consultation done, and we also charge 20% for any referral to diagnostic centers. Also, the unique thing about Arelo as regards other competitors is the fact that we offer immediate consultation and it's also affordable. Where would you find in, in less than dollar consultation anywhere? That's what we offer. Um, so basically, that's it. Thank you. That was very good. Thank you, Ishmael. Sarah, can we start with you? Do you have any feedback? Thank you. And it's it's such an important value proposition. I'm a big fan of the problem, solution, results kind of flow. And so you did a nice job of articulating and helping me understand just because I'm, you know, I'm not current on the Nigerian market, what, what the pain point is there. And then you talked about the solution. I know you only have two minutes. So what can you say? Uh, I'd be curious how, of course, you, you get that supply side in a way that's economic. And then the only question for me was then what are the results? I was kind of left um, kind of curious what traction you have so far, what, what you're seeing in terms of the value proposition for both sides. Okay, thank you very much. So what we did is we ran a beta in a particular location in Lagos, specifically Bagada. So we had over almost a thousand people signed up and we ran over, we had over 200 consultations. We actually did it for free for them. So that's what we did. And most of the people that actually came to consult were people that were um, artisans, people that were not that literate, because we set up a mobile kiosk, like a mobile center, where people can actually go to, where you meet an agent and you give you a device, you can easily now talk to the doctor. The one thing then that I'll, I'll say is if you're, if the beta is for free, there's, you know, a penny chasm, which is like the difference between someone taking something for free and then having to pay even a little bit for it is a big difference. And so to really, it's very easy to give things that cost money away for free and have the customer love it, but you don't really learn that much. And so if I understood correctly what you said, just, you know, next, the next test, make sure you charge, then you'll get a real view. All right, Samir, do you have any feedback? Yeah, I mean, it sounds like a super important problem you're working on. And, and yeah, you're obviously really close to it. So I, I'm, I'm always happy to hear uh, entrepreneurs who are, you know, close to a problem, see it every day and, and then say, I'm going to do something about this. And so similar to Sarah said, like, yeah, there's obviously a real problem and a real need. And, and for me as a, as a founder, I think I found that, like, if there's a very clear and obvious problem I'm trying to solve, it's it's very focusing. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy you you have that. Like, maybe this marketplace kind of setup you have is the right solution. Maybe it's something totally different. But I think, you know, you got your sights set on a, a problem you want to solve and a problem that's really important and can help a lot of people. And so I think that's a great a great starting point. I am cur- pretty curious about the, the economics of the business, like a dollar a day for 
consultation sounds amazing. Uh, and then, and then I, I think I immediately jumped to like, yeah, how do you, how do you actually do that on the supply side? Like, are these volunteers? Are you paying them? Like, are they qualified if, if they're that cheap? Like, so I kind of jump into like wanting to know more about the business, but I think I like where you pointed at and then the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah, Ishmael, I, I liked your passion behind it. It's clear that you care about it. That, that comes across. Your emotion is very good. Next up, we have Ann O'Neill. Ann O'Neill is from Adora Digital Health. Ann, are you there? Here I am. There you are. Well, you have Hello. two minutes to tell us about Adora. You can start now. Thank you very much. Hello. Um, I'm Ann O'Neill. I'm the founder and CEO of Adora, an early uh, stage women's health startup based in the UK. Um, our first product is a health app for women who are experiencing symptoms of menopause. We're raising 500k pre-seed investment to enable our launch and to become revenue generating. Menopause is the most misunderstood, under-researched and poorly managed female health condition in the world. There are 1.1 billion women in menopause globally whose needs are not being met and many have huge spending power. In a nascent market expected to reach 24 billion by 2030, Adora represents a very attractive early stage investment opportunity. Um, following months of user interviews, plus an injection of VC funds from a prestigious digital health accelerator, the Adora team, who comprise one of the UK's leading conversational AI engineers, plus a senior NHS consultant gynaecologist, have built an AI menopause app to improve health outcomes in women. Our enabling technology is conversational AI, onto which we've layered other technologies to create a personalised digital service, which includes diagnosis, tracking, signposting to treatment and gynecological telehealth. Our use of conversational AI gives us a unique product experience within our competitive environment. And having tested Adora with hundreds of women, we've proven we can engage, improve health outcomes and collect health data. In terms of go to market, our revenue will come from two sources. Firstly, we have an initial B2B2C model. And then secondly, our vision is to build the world's largest repository of digital menopause biomarkers. So this data will be invaluable to those who develop treatments and will move the dial in women's health as a result. Other things of note, we're running our first NHS pilot in March. We've secured our first B2B paid contract. We're currently running a grant-funded academic study and our female chairs, ex-PWC and GSK, and chair of London's MedCity. Our round's now open and we'd welcome discussion with any investor who shares our passion to build the world's number one menopause brand. And that was lovely. Thank you very much. Samir, can we start with you? Any feedback? I thought it was a great pitch and um, super clear, like kind of build up of what the problem is, the scope of it, how many people it's affecting. And I thought it was interesting to just kind of hear your, your point of view about how it's a big but really underserved problem right now. And so the sort of storytelling around the the, the problem and the challenge that you're tackling, I think was super clear. And I, I get I get what you built. So that's good. Like I come away feeling like I kind of I can picture what the app is. And so I think you did an efficient job laying out the problem, explaining what your solution was. Uh, obviously, two minutes. I have lots of questions about exactly how it works, but but I think really really well well spent time. And then exciting, I think, to hear about the pay B two B contract. I think uh, to Sarah's point earlier, like seeing that there are some early results, I think that definitely hooked me and uh, makes me makes me want to learn more. And so yeah, I thought I thought overall like really good use of the two minutes. Sarah, you used the two minutes very effectively, and um, and and kind of covered a lot of things. You know, it's it's a huge market. I underserved for all the reasons that you articulated. And I also, you know, as VCs, we always are wondering, like, what's the why now? Like, why is someone able to create a product now 
that's disruptive um, against whatever other options that consumer might have. And so certainly AI is, is on the forefront of all of our minds right now. It's like a potential disruptive technology. And so I love, you know, that you, you kind of, you, you spoke to that. And so you can kind of start to imagine how the cost structure of your product will be very different than anything else in the market and how that could break through the noise. Cause it is, I would imagine there's a lot of noise in this space. And so how do you, how do you break through? It wasn't totally clear on the business model, which may have just been my missing and, um, and, and just, you know, the, the B2B to C approach, the question that came to me was like, oh, interesting, how to think about going B2B to C as an offering versus direct to consumer as an example. So that, that was kind of, and I know you can only fit to, so much into two minutes, but that's where my questioning was going to go. And yeah, I mean, your point about timing, about the chat AI and the fact that it's come of age, um, B2B2C model, that's where you make money. Uh, don't believe women in the UK because we have the NHS will pay for this. Businesses need to, one in 10 women leave the workplace because of menopause symptoms. So there's a lot of arguments as to why that's a good place to start. But really, we want to change what we know about women's health. So the bigger play is the, the menopause data lake, 10 million women. And also in terms of timing, I feel that Medora is where Headspace and Calm were in 2016, 2015. Um, they reimagined mental health, and that's what we want to do with menopause. Dismiss the taboo, get people talking, and help women thrive with purpose through the second stage of their life. Your, your passion comes through as well. It was, it was a lovely pitch. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you for the opportunity. Of course. We got one more. It's Fabio. Fabio is going to produce Bite Night. And Fabio just found out about 30 minutes ago that he was going to do this. So here he is. Right. Everybody. Go ahead. Two minutes, sir. Perfect. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you for having me here. Uh, my name is Fabio. I'm the founder of Bite Night. We are the world's first virtual supercomputer that is powered by everyone's smartphones, tablets, and computers. Um, so basically, we are trying to solve a problem in the cloud computing world. Uh, cloud computing is inequitable. Businesses spend over $300 billion uh, on cloud computing every year. And these services are vastly overpriced because they rely exclusively on expensive data centers. Um, and we have 12 plus billion devices uh, in the world that are idle eight hours uh, on average every day. And we have online marketplaces to buy and sell almost everything, you know, from material goods to electricity, yet no one can sell their data processing power besides cloud providers. So we are trying to tap into uh, that market um, with, a, uh, with a model that is called uh, grid computing. So grid computing was famous in the mid-1990s. I don't know if you guys were uh, alive back then, but uh, these projects, uh, like academic projects, uh, they uh, were very cool, but they didn't generate any, you know, um, um, uh, any revenue, they, they were not uh, marketable products. So we are trying to revive that kind of technology uh, by creating a data processing platform powered by grid computing, where uh, businesses can buy high throughput processing services and the common devices owners like me or you can sell their exceeding computing capacity. So it's, uh, uh, it's a marketplace. And um, 
parallel computing uh, can be dozens of times faster than traditional uh, computing. The price of our service is also low because it's the lowest to keep the suppliers happy about sharing their capacity. And there is no single point of failure. Uh, the architecture is distributed. And so um, we are uh, very secure and fast. I'm going to have to stop you there. We're over the two minutes, but I think we got it. All right. All right, Fabio. Nice. Thank you so much. And I, I do remember the 90s and I do. So this is folding at home, right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Right. Samir, let's start with you. Super cool like idea. Uh, I'm... I think you did a really good job, like kind of building it up. I think maybe one of my favorite moments was when you talked about the, I think it was, I forget the number, 12 billion idle devices uh, for eight hours a day. Uh, that just like gave me a good visual of like, oh yeah, that is like a lot of wasted resources. Uh, I'm I'm curious to 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 learn more. And I think the marketplace model is clever. Uh, I am I'm curious about like how much consumers would be excited to put their phones into this into this grid and make some money, but also probably ruin their battery life and, and all the things that come with that. And so, but I think it's, I know there's a well-told story and I think you motivated it well. And I'm excited to be a customer and try some some cloud compute via <laughs> billions of smartphones. So yeah, I think it's a really interesting interesting story. And uh, yeah, curious to kind of hear about more of the business model, but I thought you used your, your time well. Sarah, thanks. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, look, kudos. I can't imagine what it must, you know, 30 minutes of advance notice. It's hard to compress everything into two minutes. But um, it's a very provocative idea that's, you know, yeah, like, I, you know, marketplaces, we love when someone's able to take an asset that's underutilized and bring it online. And that usually is a pretty good recipe for, for building a marketplace. The, you know, there, I, I think Samir kind of touched on a question that I'd have is it may end up being that you, you end up having all these power sellers in a way, like people who kind of lean in on the marketplace and really have like their 10 refurbished iPhones plugged in and they're just, you know, <laughs> minting money. I would imagine that, you know, the, early, the consumer, kind of the, the normal consumer I wonder if you make enough money to make it worth the cost that Samir was highlighting. Like just how much, you know, getting the supply and the demand to really match up so that there's still enough, that you create enough value that there's some something that you can capture is always the tricky thing. But it probably ends up just being a, a really the focus on the use case that you have and 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 kind of finding that white hot center. So it's very, I haven't, it's not an idea I've heard before, so I'm intrigued. All right, Fabio. Cool. Thank you so much for that. I appreciate it. Thank you so much uh, for your feedback. Samir, Sarah, thank you so much for joining today. I, I appreciate it. It was a great conversation. Next week, we have Christina Ross and Reggie from Mayfield on. So please join us again next week. We're going to be here at the same time, same place, noon Pacific on TechCrunch Live. TechCrunch Live is hosted by myself, TechCrunch Managing Editor, Matt Burns. We're produced by Teresa Locansolo and Maggie Stamitz, with video production by Ishad Kalkarni, Julio Barrientos, and Dennis Martinez. We are edited by Andrew Mendez, Maggie Stamitz, and Teresa Locansolo. Bryce Durbin is our illustrator, and Henry Pickovit manages TechCrunch audio products. If you want your questions to be featured in an upcoming episode, email us at podcast at techcrunch.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you next week.